Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome to the American Bar Association's Legal Rebels Trailblazer podcast. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer for the American Bar Association Journal. Today, we have Mike Dillon, outgoing general counsel at Adobe, and previously general counsel at Silver Spring Networks and Sun Microsystems. Mike, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Answer One, for its support of the show. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. So since you're at the point of your career that you're wrapping things up as a general counsel, which you've been doing for over 20 years, I'm curious to get your thoughts about what the biggest changes you've seen is the role of GC as you've gone through some of these larger tech companies. Sure. Great question. I've been general counsel now of four different companies, two small ones and two big ones. So it's been quite a ride. And along the way, I've seen very significant changes in the role. And I think the first one is that the role has changed from being a traditional legal advisor to a general business person and business advisor. And you know, the perfect example of that is I report to the CEO here, Shantanu Narayan. And I would say 90% of the discussions we have every year are on business issues or organization issues or you know, talking about competitors or market dynamics or people. We rarely talk about legal issues. So that's been quite a change. I think another change has been the focus on running our organizations internally like business people. And this is going to make me sound really old, but when I started my career, I can recall typing up complaints. Uh, I was in a litigation firm on a typewriter with carbon paper. And you know, very quickly, that was replaced by networked x86 PCs and then the internet via the Netscape Mosaic browser and thin clients, mobile and cloud computing now. You know, all these have changed the way not only we support our companies from a legal standpoint, but from the way we do our work. One of the things I'm most proud of being at Adobe and ending my career here is that we use um, our own tools, Adobe Document uh, Cloud and Adobe Sign to store and manage and route and track and sign documents electronically. So when I started my career, we had all these file rooms full of paper and we're passing paper around with sticky tabs to sign it. And now it's all digitized. And that's been just a really amazing change. So that's probably a second change. A third change is really probably more recent than anything, but it's the job has expanded much more into the government relations world. And, and it's not just on public policy issues that involve our core markets like IP production, but a broader range of issues that affect employees in our communities. You know, Adobe, for example, has been fairly outspoken on things like DACA, the travel ban, the overturn of DOMA, sustainability. These are issues in areas where traditionally companies like ours haven't been as vocal. And the GC is expected to help participate and drive our communications in those areas and our positions. And then two other, two other areas come to mind. The other is all businesses are now global. When I started my career, you could support a business that just did business in California or just did business in the U.S., but by virtue of the World Wide Web and the Internet now, all businesses are global. And so you have to take into consideration local cultures, business practices, and a very expanded regulatory environment. And then finally, I think one of the 
probably overlooked but important areas where GCs tend to play is in crisis management. In my career, I've been tasked with helping to quarterback or lead the response in any number of crisis situations, whether it's a product defect case, a security breach, a government investigations, a change in leadership. And that's an area where I don't think 20 or 30 years ago, traditionally GCs had that responsibility. So those top of mind, just five or six things. And that's really covering a breadth of issues that have been added to the GC's role. I'm curious if you think any of those things or maybe things you didn't list have gone in the wrong direction for general counsels, or perhaps if you believe something's been lost that used to exist in a general counsel's office on account of these changes. I think there are some areas where we haven't made as much progress. I, I guess that's the way I would articulate it. Two that come to mind, one is, at least in, in my world, patent litigation reform. I can remember being in private practice more than 30 years ago and having a client who was first approached by an NPE or patent troll, and it was an anomaly. And then it became a tsunami. And I think many of us thought and have been actively encouraging the government to enact reforms that would diminish these types of actions against companies because they really are attacks on innovation and nothing more. And um, we haven't been as successful there. And, and so as a consequence, companies like ours have had to take matters into their own hands, if you will. And you know that's one of the things I'm really proud of here at Adobe. We have been very aggressive in fighting patent trolls and have um, been very public about it and very successful. So we've been defeating patent trolls at trial and in motion practice. And as a consequence, the number of these cases we're facing has declined uh, pretty dramatically. But again, I'd hoped there would have been more government change in this area. And then the other area, which I think most GCs would agree with me, is we expected more of a change in our outside counsel's business models. You know, I still unfortunately find so many firms that when you engage them, they assume that we want to have a relationship based on an hourly basis, an hourly fee. And that we have found is the least successful model. And so we have gone through this undertaking where we have um, compressed the number of firms we used and we use less number of firms and have a better relationship with them such that now uh, less than 30% of all the work that's done by firms for us is done on a billable hour. The rest is on alternative fee arrangements. And we've gotten much better relationships with those firms. But again, that's something where we're driving it as companies. And I had hoped that um, the firms themselves would be more progressive. So one of the things you started off with when I asked you about what you've seen change related to how much more business advice that you're giving. And one of the things that kind of follows your trajectory and timeline at Adobe is that when you started there, the company was releasing a product every 18 months. It was the older licensing software model when people still bought physical software. Now Adobe is pushing updates continually. It just never stops. I'm curious, while that's an evolution in software design and development, what changes were required of the legal department to make this transition a reality? Oh, great question. And in fact, that's the reason I came to Adobe to be part of that transformation. I was at a Silver Spring and we were getting ready for an IPO. And most people, you know, when you have that opportunity, think you're nuts if you leave to go somewhere else. And in my case, once I spoke to the management team here and the board and learned about the transformation the company was undertaking, I was like, wow, I want to be a part of that just 
from a business standpoint, let alone a legal standpoint. And but you're absolutely correct. It's an amazingly challenging transformation from a you know, it requires changes in the, our licensing terms, our sales agreements, the way we support product development and marketing. There's a myriad of finance issues related to revenue recognition and how we com- communicate with Wall Street. Privacy and security obviously become issues that are paramount, where they aren't the type of issues you necessarily are concerned with when you're shipping box software. There's a whole communication aspect with customers and helping them understand the value in this model shift, going from owning a piece of software or owning a box of software and licensing it and paying it on a one-time basis to a subscription and where they're essentially leasing it. But in return, they're getting this flood of innovation on a daily basis. But providing that, by the way, requires our teams to really change the way they work. If you think back you know, five years ago, six years ago when we started this, all of our product support lawyers, they had this almost like ramp up every 18 months toward getting technology and innovation and new functionality released as one piece of package software. So that was kind of an every 18-month rhythm. And now that iteration, that innovation happens on a daily basis and is pushed out over the web. And so that's required the people, the professionals, whether it's finance, legal, or other, to support them in a different way. So it's been a huge, huge shift across the company and specifically in the legal department. Hey, Mike, before our next question, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800 Answer One or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back, listeners. We're here with Mike Dillon continuing our conversation. So, you were just talking about how your challenges around getting legal departments outside legal counsel that you work with to shift away from the billable hour model. And it triggered my memory of the interview you did with the journal when you were named Illegal Rebel in 2009. You were still at Sun Microsystems at the time that you were talking about essentially the same topic then about how to streamline and control spending with outside counsel. So now that you have at a minimum 10 years experience waging this war, I wonder if you could go a little deeper and maybe describe what you think are the challenges of why we haven't seen this change from out-of-house counsel and what you think it might take for out-of-house counsel to finally jettison the billable hour. Yeah, first of all, embarrassingly, it's actually like closer to 20, 25 years of experience with this issue. And I was in law firms myself, so I understand both sides of the equation. The lack of alignment is created because as an in-house lawyer, And very much as a business person aligned with my company, I'm trying to keep costs down as low as possible. And I don't bill out to my internal clients, so I have no way of raising rates. An outside firm, they always have that ability to raise their hourly rate when they want to maintain their margins. And so there's this disconnect between the law firm and their client. They're not aligned in terms of the economics. And that mismatch creates less than optimal service from my standpoint. And, you know, a good example is I was just actually talking to a young lawyer this morning. Since I'm paying on an hourly basis for outside counsel advice, 
I'm not going to call that counsel until the last second because I don't, you know, I don't want to incur any additional cost. Where it might be better if I was constantly educating them and working with them about the changes that are happening and the developments and dynamic aspects of my business so that they could give me a more thoughtful response and, and maybe get more value in return. But that billable hour is an obstruction to it. And so what we've been doing is, like I said earlier, is spending a lot of time compressing the number of firms we have. So we've gone from close to 350 five years ago to down to about 64, 65 this year. And in most regions, we have two or three preferred firms. And as part of that, we try to get to flat fees. We try to look for economics that are such that the firm wins and that we win. And we have discussions about how we can do work internally that might be more cost-effective than having the firm do it. So that's really, really significant issue for, I think, all law firms. And so shifting the attention from outside counsel to your own shop, over your career, you've been outspoken about increasing legal department diversity. What is the problem as you see it, and how have you worked to diversify your own teams? Yeah, this is one of the areas where I would say from a career perspective, looking back over you know, the last 35 years, there's definitely been progress, but it's the speed of that progress that we all grapple with. So it's very much a temporal issue. I, I am a huge believer that uh, not only our profession, but the world is getting much more diverse. It's just an, the nature of human evolution and travel and uh, interconnectivity and all of these things. But the question is, how do you accelerate it? And I think we've made really good progress on the gender side. My graduating class in law school had just, it was a small portion that were women. And now I look at our legal department here at Adobe, and I think latest count more than 60% of the department are women. So we've made really good strides there. The challenge is underrepresented minorities, and that's a pipeline issue. So what we've been doing at Adobe are a number of things. One is we have very robust internships. We've got a program where we're actually reaching out to universities that graduate a higher percentage of underrepresented minorities to try to get them into our funnel, if you will, as potential employees. We also have been working with our firms on some innovative ideas. Like I, I mentioned, you know, we've working with preferred firms to have better relationships. One of the outcomes of that is this program we call the 1L Diversity Internship. And we're doing this with Perkins Coie and with Arnold and Porter in the U.S., And what it is, is we jointly work together, the firm and Adobe, and we identify diverse 1L students, and they get selected for an internship. And the internship comprises of doing half the time with the law firm and half the time in-house at Adobe. Because our feeling is you're a 1L, and that gives you an opportunity very early on to figure out what way you want to direct your career in-house or a law firm. And so this has gotten a lot of um, good traction, and we expect to expand it with our partners, uh, other partners around the world next year. And then the final thing that um, we're doing is something we call the Global Law Services Team. And this is the one that I'm probably most proud of. And when you get to be a company of our size, you've got work that, if you think of a pyramid at the top, is very high value, very significant work that requires a lot of expertise. And at the lower end of that triangle, you've got work that's important, but it's repeatable and there's a higher volume of it. That's the type of work that's ideal for new lawyers or legal interns to cut their teeth on. And so we have gone through the process of aggregating all that work and it goes across many disciplines, whether it's um, transactional or corporate securities or IP or compliance. 
and creating really robust training and mentoring programs so we can essentially mirror what law firms do, but we can do it in-house and we can bring legal interns in during the summer or during the school year and they can work on that team and get experience. We can hire first-year graduates or second-year graduates out of uh, law school and they can come into that team and get that kind of training. And so that gives us also an opportunity to focus more on diverse candidates because we're closer to the schools. So back in the mid-2000s, you were known for being an early blog adopter in the general counsel world. I'm curious to know what led you to start blogging about your work and if you think that blogging holds the same value today as it did back in 2006 when you started. That's another good question. Blogging is a very deliberate process. I I actually started it because the CEO I worked with at the time he egged me into it and he knew I liked to write. So I got started, yeah, I think it was 2005 or 2006 and I've been blogging since. It's a very deliberate process. It's similar to me to being a columnist in a columnist in a newspaper. You have to attract readers, you have to be thoughtful and you have to write in an engaging way. Other forms of social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you know, all of these are ones that I use, but they're for different purposes. You know, Twitter, for example, is uh, wonderful for the immediacy of news. In some sense, when I think about these two, blogging versus other forms of social, there's a favorite quote I have from President Wilson, and he said that the thing to provide is not heat, but light. And to me, Twitter oftentimes provides heat. It generates a great deal of friction, and it can be very entertaining. On the other hand, longer form written communications like blogs, they provide light. They educate, they deliver insights. And in today's world, I'd suggest we need more light and a little less heat. So yes, I think blogging still has value and I tend to do much more of it in the future. On the dichotomy of light versus heat, I'm curious if you have any particular tips or thoughts on how people should cut through the heat or noise on social media to find more light. It's a really difficult uh, challenge, and I find this with my own children these days. We are so addicted to the immediacy and the sound bites that come across social media that it's hard to stop and really focus on an issue. And the problem is these issues are very nuanced. You know, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. If you're talking about DACA or you're talking about gun safety or your, you know, sustainability, whatever it is, they aren't simple issues. They require a lot of thought. So the important thing to me is for people to determine where is the area that is going to be significant to them and where they want to focus and go deep. Look for resources, blogs, books, periodicals, and a diversity of those so that you can really get educated in a given area. And uh, I worry that we're losing that more and more in current society. So speaking about increased focus or going deep on a particular issue, one thing I noticed with your Adobe blog is that you seem to have shifted away from legal topics and moved more towards the issue of climate change. I'm curious if this shows us any light in regards to what you're going to be up to after you retire from Adobe. Yeah, well, first of all, let me make it clear. It's not an Adobe blog. This is my blog. And it was the same way when I was at Silver Spring or at Sun or other places. Um, It's always been a personal blog. But what I've tried to do is write from the standpoint and the perspective of Mike Dillon, not Mike Dillon, a lawyer, and not Mike Dillon, anything else. So there are a lot of things that go into what is Mike Dillon. And the reason I say that is because there are many great technical legal blogs out there. And I was, when I started, I was trying to give the viewpoint of what it's like to be a GC named Mike Dillon, who's also a husband, has three wonderful kids, likes to travel, has a quirky sense of humor and all these other things. And so you'll see, if you look back over my blog that I've, you know, the topics are, there's a wide variety of them. Um, Most recently I've been writing about sustainability because that's a big issue to me. Last year, my 
son and I were part of a five-person expedition that went up to the high Arctic, less than 500 miles from the North Pole, to do a documentary film with a climatologist about the decline of sea ice and the impact that has on climate change. So that's really important to me. Gun safety is important to me. I've been writing about that. Truth of the matter is I write about a variety of things. And I think, yeah, as far as what's next for me, sustainability and environmentalism will be important issues. But writing will as well. I I like to write like every other lawyer out there. I've got a novel out there that's getting shopped. um, And uh, I'd like to do more of that in a more focused way. But I have a lot of outside interests. Is the documentary you worked on available yet for people to watch? Not yet. We, it's called Enduring Ice, and uh, you can go to EnduringIce.org and see the website, and there's a blog that we did while we were that remote via sat phones. It was quite an experience. We had to be rescued to get out. It turned out to be very different than we expected. We put together a short, which we're now shopping to try to get funding to make the full documentary and um, get it released for distribution. And besides working on non-legal issues like climate change and sustainability, I'm curious if you have any plans to remain active in in some of the discussions we've had today around diversity, the billable hour, and other issues affecting GCs, or is is this going to be the end of your GC period? I think it's a perfect time to turn over the reins. We've got a the company has gone through this wonderful transformation. My organization, I could not be more proud of what they've accomplished and how we're organized and structured and the amazing talent we have. So it's a perfect time to kind of turn over the keys to somebody else who will take it to the next level. For me, I think there'll be a variety of ways professionally that I'll still participate. A number of law schools have talked to me about teaching or participating as part of the education process. I've had some outreach from organizations that are interested in me serving as a coach for GCs and other executives. And then I'm also looking at some board opportunities as well. So I think that's going to hopefully be the piece that satisfies the professional part of my um, career. And if people want to keep in touch with whatever you end up working on in your next phase, is there a Twitter handle or URL that you'd recommend they go to? So my blog is mikedillon.wordpress.com, and that's an easy way, and you can always see what I'm up to there and also reach me via that blog. And then at Twitter, I'm at uh, Dylan Notes, N-O-T-E-S. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, and good luck on wherever your adventure takes you on next. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm an avid listener of podcasts, and this is the first time I've ever appeared on one, so I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. I'm Jason Tesche, signing off for the Legal Rebels Trailblazer podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.